Welcome to Always and Forever, a One Tree Hill podcast where two lifelong friends and superfans analyze and dissect the greatest teen show from the early 2000s. I'm Caitlin Illinich. And I'm Jeremy Rodriguez. This week we are discussing with tired eyes, tired minds, tired souls, we slept. The 16th episode of season 3, which is written by the creator and showrunner, directed by Gregory Prage, and originally aired on the WB on March 1st, 2006. And in a change of pace from how we usually record our recaps, we will be discussing this episode scene by scene in chronological order. We really want to showcase how the storyline was originally intended. And in addition to our usual episodic recap, we will be releasing a second part of this discussion this Thursday, March 9th, where we have a fully spoiled discussion with Gavi Kovacs, a mental health professional and fellow One Tree Hill fan, about the deeper themes of this episode. And it was a very great conversation, and we hope you listen to it as a good supplemental part to this discussion. Speaking of those deeper themes, we should note that both discussions will include frank discussions about gun violence, bullying, and suicide. Please, please take care while listening. And a reminder that if you need to speak with someone, you can call the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. Help is available 24-7. And for one final note, this podcast is spoiler-free, but stay tuned after the credits for a fully spoiled discussion. Somebody told me that this is the place where everything's better and everything's safe. So today's episode is titled after the song With Tired Eyes, Tired Minds, Tired Souls, We Slept by Explosions in the Sky. What were your thoughts, Jeremy? Well, one thing to note about this particular piece of music is that it's entirely instrumental, no lyrics. So our analysis is a little bit all over the place here, I guess you could say. Um, But I did try my best to analyze it the best I could. And I noticed that the music seems to be a mishmash of different songs, because this song is 12 minutes and two seconds. And I feel like the fact that there's so many different types of, I don't want to I don't want to say instruments, forgive me, I am so bad at like describing music, but there's like a bunch of different like tones throughout the song. And I feel like that illustrates Jimmy's mental state, kind of, because he seems to be all over the place throughout this episode. And I also noticed that toward the end, the music slows down to almost silence, which I think is very telling and kind of symbolic. And again, I don't know if they chose that this episode title with that in mind, um, but that's how I saw it. I noticed that too, about the song kind of slowing down, but I, I also noticed that it got, like, throughout the whole song, it got louder at parts, it got softer at parts. Mm-hmm. And then you're right, at the very end, it, it like totally like faded out Yeah, into silence. What did you think about the title? Like, if we just use the words. I know. It, it's always, I feel like One Tree Hill fans will understand this. Like, this title just sticks in your head. Like, you know the title of this episode, you know? Mm-hmm. It's hard to forget. Um, and I truly would love to know how they chose, how they found this song and how they chose this. I think the re- repetition of tired, like tired eyes, tired minds, tired souls really um relates to what jimmy says at the end he's just tired i think he's in the tutor center and 
he's talking to everyone and he says, I'm just tired of it. I just got tired of it. And yeah, I think that's the biggest connection. And ultimately, like, I guess you could say we slept like, you know, he ended his life. Um, what, what, what about you? What did you think? That's kind of how I took it. Yeah, I, I think that's an interesting analysis. Um, what do you do? You think there's a significance for the fact that and, and Grant and I know that like, this is the title of the song. Like, it's not like they could change it. I mean, they could, but whatever. But you're saying it's about Jimmy's mental state specifically. But the fact that it says "we tired sl- tired minds tired souls we slept." I know. Do Do you think there's like maybe a deeper meaning for that? Saying that you know this is about all of the the bullies and the beaten and the loners that mouth mentions probably because jimmy also says in the episode you know you think you think i'm the only one who feels this way you mm. know that the only the only one who would you know bring bring a gun to school basically so yeah i think that has a larger significance referring to all of the people who are like jimmy i was also looking at the title i don't know if this sounds like a stretch or not but it, it made me think about like in today's world as a society, we are kind of sleeping on the fact that we, we're not doing anything <laughs> about gun violence. And mm. I feel like most people can relate. Like, we're tired of hearing these stories. I, I'm tired. My mind, my soul is tired from hearing these same stories over again in the news. And I, I think, personally, as a society, we're, we're not doing anything. We're, quote unquote, sleeping. There's no action. Mm. So I was kind of looking at it in that way, too. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a really good point. And we actually dive into some of that in our conversation with Gavi as well. So yeah, rather go off on a tangent, definitely go and listen to that discussion when it goes live. Um, I actually looked at this song in a slightly different way, because while I think, yeah, that's absolutely valid that we do kind of sleep on the fact that this continues to happen all the time. Um, I also kind of looked at it as the the fact that there's, here's Jimmy Edwards and he's in pain, and it seems like all the other characters are kind of sleeping on the fact that he's in his pain, and this is what happens when his pain sort of erupts, which I know there's a lot of... We have a lot of complicated feelings on that, which we do unpack with Gavi as well. So that's how I looked at it. Yeah, I think we can look at that title in a lot of different directions. It's it's a pretty mm-hmm. um, open-ended title. And like I said earlier, I would love to know like how they chose the song. Mm-hmm. So shall we get into talking about this actual episode itself? Are we ready? I don't think we'll ever be ready, but I guess we got to. I know. Before we get into it, I just want to make a note that throughout this uh, throughout this episode, I am going to be cited the audio commentary on the DVDs, and the commentary is with the creator and executive producer, and there's some very gross comments throughout, which I will bring up, unfortunately. Um, it's also with executive producer Joe Davola. Colin Fickus, Sophia Bush, Lee Norris, and the music supervisor, Lindsay Wolfenden. And I'm very disappointed that I wasn't able to watch the commentary <laughs> because my DVDs for One Tree Hill Season 3 just do not work anymore. DVD- Your DVDs died. Yeah. That's how I feel. Yeah, my third disc is like gone for whatever reason, but. Yep. 
So I'm interested to hear everything you shared today. And I <laughs> cool. I will react to all of it. <laughs> Don't you worry, I will do all the heavy lifting for that. But I do wanna I do wanna mention one thing uh that's brought up like right in the beginning of the commentary. Like, you know, or close to the beginning, I should say. Um, Sophia makes a comment saying that something like this hasn't happened in a very long time, thank God. And we wouldn't, we didn't want to give a child an idea to do that. We were doing a service to why this happens and why it shouldn't. Which, hearing that comment, it kind of doesn't age the best. Like, why this happens? I don't know. And the fact that she said that it hasn't happened for a really long time when that's not true. Yeah, even at, even like in 2006, I I looked up like you know recent shootings around that time, and yeah, it's and I don't have like the dates in front of me, but it was pretty recent. Yeah, and similarly to uh, the uh, anatomy of an episode documentary, uh, that's a documentary that just uh, talks about the making of this episode, and you can you know if you don't have the DVDs, you can watch this documentary on YouTube. It's like 10 minutes long. But there's a moment where Moira Kelly said that Jimmy didn't come to this decision on his own. And again, this this was 2006. I feel like we just didn't know better about comments like this, but I do want to point out the ickiness of that. Yeah, and I know we will touch on this throughout the episode today, but the fact that like we can't blame other people for what someone does like the choices people make you know mm-hmm. like we can't we can't blame other people even mouth and lucas for not being friends with jimmy and then jimmy one day brings a gun to school like you you can't do that you can't be friends with everyone you can't maintain every relationship you know it that's a lot to put on anyone so i don't think that's that that's fair and i think the episode really um tries to emphasize that fact. And I think that's where Maura Kelly's comment is coming from. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know? For sure. Yeah. And this episode, I feel like, is very complicated. Like, I I feel like the beauty of the storyline is that it doesn't really take a stance. And it just brings up a lot of questions. Like, should art, should a piece of art take a stance? Should there be a deeper social message? I don't know. And I don't know if this episode is trying to say anything. I feel like it just is what it is. And this makes me think of another thing that Moira Kelly said on the anatomy of an episode, which is on YouTube. She said something along the lines of, we're not taking sides, we're just kind of sharing it all. And then I guess you can make of it what you want. And that's, to me, a problem. If you're making a school shooting episode, I'm sorry, there is a right and wrong side. <laughs> there, There's not... Yeah. There, Yeah, it, it's... Now, this episode, which we talked about this in our discussion with Gavi, too, about how this episode is truly not a school shooting episode, because Jimmy doesn't... He doesn't kill anyone. He didn't really mm-hmm. want to hurt anyone. I know Peyton got shot, but, like, that really wasn't the intention. It's more so a suicide episode. And I know Hillary Burton says that in the Drama Queens podcast as well. And I fully agree with it. Um, I think this episode is more about mental health and suicide than it is about, like, school shootings and how they connect to, like, what actually happens in reality in today's world, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, listen in on that discussion with Gavi. We go deep, much deeper into that, why these things happen. Um, but that's kind of like 
the way I'm going into the episode today is I'm really thinking about, I guess, how they present it. And to me, they present it as more of like Jimmy is struggling with his mental health. Yeah. And he needs help. And then ultimately it ends in his suicide. And that's kind of the lens I'm taking. Yeah. And I think that is the appropriate lens to take it in because, and I know like nowadays we know a little bit better about like, you know, school shootings aren't caused by mental illness or mental health issues or anything like that. Like, you know, it takes like a lot to actually plan a mass shooting, but I feel like Jimmy, and it's it's very prevalent too. Like he because he even says later on in the episode, like does this look planned to you? Because this was not planned. He was not thinking clearly. Um, it was unfortunate that he had access to a gun. Um, which that's another whole can of worms that we can open up here. So yeah, yeah, it's a lot. It is a lot. So I guess let's dive in from the very beginning. Yes, let's um, do it. If you watch on the streaming services like HBO Max and Hulu, you will see a parental advisory. It says, please stay tuned for important resource information following the conclusion of tonight's episode. Parental discretion is advised. However, Jeremy said on the DVDs, since I wasn't able to access mine, <laughs> that this uh, advisory is not on there. And the other funny thing is, is that on the streaming version, they actually don't provide the resources <laughs> that they say they're going to provide. Um, but if you look it up on YouTube, and I actually remember seeing this when the episode originally aired, there is a PSA at the end of the episode with Chad Michael Murray and Colin Fickus, and they provide uh, two hotlines that you can call if you're um, having struggles with mental health or thoughts of suicide. That's nice. I wonder why they wouldn't have kept the PSA on, like, the DVDs and the streaming service. Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. I, yeah, I wonder if it's because those... It's uh outdated. I mean, those phone numbers, yeah, I don't think you can call them anymore. I mean, I don't, I don't know, but now there's the... Like, thankfully, there's that suicide prevention hotline that's open 24 hours, 988, that you can call, um, which that did not exist at the time this episode was created. But still, I'd say... Why would you include that little intro? Maybe change it, maybe update it for streaming purposes. Yeah, that would make more sense. Or just say parental discussion does advise. There's sensitive themes in tonight's episode or whatever. <laughs> like 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 the fucking uh trailer that played for this stuff. I, I got, like this is before you started watching One Tree Hill, but do you remember how many times this promo played on WB? I don't know what I was watching on the WB at the time. I guess Gilmore Girls. Gilmore Girls, definitely. Um Seventh Heaven. Seventh Heaven, yeah, yeah. I guess you're right. Okay, <laughs> so I probably did see the preview, but I had no like idea. I'm sure you were jumping up and down on the bus, like getting me to like, ah, we're gonna, we need to watch this episode. <laughs> but um, and I convinced you two episodes later. Thank you very much. We're getting very close to your first ever episode of One Tree Hill, yes, Caitlin. I am are. excited. <laughs> but but yeah, like this this promo was like, you know. It was wild how often it played on the WB network. Uh, it was something. But anyway, do you, you want to continue? Do you want to continue taking us through this scene? <laughs> sure. Um, one thing I just wanted to note: I thought it was interesting on the Drama Queens podcast how Hillary, like, she mentioned the parental advisory, and she was asking, like, "What is the goal for this episode? Are we educating grown-ups or kids?" And it's just kind of something to ponder. I don't know if I necessarily have an answer for it. I guess 
my answer, if I had to choose, would be trying to educate everyone because I feel like everyone's involved in, like, parents are raising kids. Kids are going to school and dealing with these types of things. So I think it's just kind of all around, like, a, serving as a warning to make sure that you're... Really, it's, a, it's an episode that you have to talk about, you know? Mm-hmm. That's truly what it is. And I think it's supposed to spark discussion between a parent and a child really yeah so that was my interesting tidbit about that um and then let's move into the actual episode so this scene to me is it's like iconic in the fact that it like just is embedded in my memory of how it starts with Jimmy lighting the cigarette, and you you see, and we should know, know Gavin DeGrasse on. It begins with the title yeah. cards. So that's how you know this episode is going to be a big one. Yeah, for sure. It gets right to the point. They want to use every minute of time, and you see that cigarette. Jimmy lights it, and it like zooms in on that, and then you see first you see the cigarette. And then it zooms out, so you see Jimmy's face, and then he he's smoking the cigarette and looking at the campus, seeing, you know, all types of groups of kids. And over top of that, the time capsule video is playing. Yeah. Can I can I jump in with like a take on that sure. particular moment? Um so something that I find very interesting when they play the audio of the time capsule clip. He says, well, the truth is, there's not a single person in this place worth remembering. But in the original clip, it's, there's not a single person in this place worth remembering in 50 years. So they actually cut off the in 50 years part um, for this episode. And I feel like it's because they were trying to make art. They wanted this to be truncated so this episode could stand on its own. And I get that just to be a little bit more viewer-friendly. Um... But I feel like Trumpkin and it removes the context behind the whole confession. And and again, like while I think it does help the episode stand on its own, I feel like it makes Jimmy come off as kind of incel-ish in his way about how he like blames everybody. And again, I'm I feel like we're gonna keep plugging this conversation throughout, but we dive into incel culture with Gavi in our uh, in our discussion with her so definitely take a listen to that and i won't go off on a tangent regarding that that's interesting i didn't catch that but it does remove the context it actually makes the statement harsher like currently in real time there's not a single person in this place worth remembering he's not talking about the future in this context (laughs) right and I think they were trying to, like, be, like, you know, big episode of the week. Like, this is a very special episode. Because, like, I know, like, th- this episode was how, like, my mom and my sister started watching One Tree Hill. Because they kept seeing the promos. They're like, oh, that show you keep talking about, One Tree Hill. Maybe, uh, maybe I'll watch it now. And then they did. And they watched it until the very final season. And so I guess, like, yeah, this episode is, uh or, like, cutting that off does make it friendly for new viewers, which I think that's who they were trying to draw in. But still, I just still kind of dislike how it removes the context. Yeah, that's true, because then Jimmy continues to say, see, people here are fake, so they stick to their cliques to hide it. And the stoners are medicated, and the honor students are afraid, and the jocks, well, they're jocks, man. They'll peak at 17, and their cheerleader girlfriends will be fat and lonely by 21. Losers. Everyone here is a loser. And the truth is, every day I have to come to the school is one less day I have to come back. 
It's a pretty haunting opening scene, hearing that. And we heard bits of that previously, but hearing it all again is, it's tough because the camera follows like Jimmy's line of vision and he's, as he's talking about these different cliques, he's seeing like the cheerleaders and the the stoners or loners or whoever in the quad as, as he's about to go into school. And then he says, here we go. So you know, like, something's about to happen as he's walking into the school. And, like, that cigarette is kind of almost giving him, like, courage to to go inside. So the next few scenes are kind of, like, all over the place. But, you know, Jimmy goes inside the school and he sees the kids who beat him up the night before. Yeah, the the guy, uh, this is uh, the Russ Lahotny guy that's uh, mentioned in the Time Capsule video. And... You know, he's showing, like, you know, just, like, one last scene. But I just gotta say, kind of a missed opportunity. How come, like, how come Russ wasn't in, like, the Marcus role, for example? And and, and keep in mind, like, Marcus Coloma does a fantastic job in this episode as the Marcus character in the Tudor Center. And, like, I don't want to, I don't want to have him any other way. But, like, it it just makes you wonder, like, why didn't they just, why did they use the actual bully of Jimmy? And why did they create a new character? Just an observation. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't really know. That could have been pretty impactful, too. Like, we didn't need a whole new bully character. Yeah. Because Marcus is a bit of a bully in the stuff that he mm-hmm. says to Jimmy. That That is an interesting observation. I'm not sure. But then again, I guess maybe we needed to see Jimmy pull the gun on... Even though he doesn't necessarily pull the gun on Russ. And, you know, are we ready to talk about, like, what happens next? Because I can transition us there. Yeah, and I one one last comment. Sure. So I think maybe it's to show how many bullies Jimmy has. Okay. There was this group, this guy, there was like several people who beat him up the night before. Yeah. The one started it, but then others jumped in, and they're the ones who are taking apart his locker right now. And then, then they brush past him. So it's those groups of, that group of kids, and then you have the Marcus character who's not nice to Jimmy either. So you can kind of imagine, like, he's surrounded by this, these types of people. Yeah, but uh, something that I found very interesting is Jimmy pulls out the gun, and he's aiming roughly toward the crowd, but Russ and the guys who beat him up the, the previous episode, they're more off to the left, and then there's Brooke and Peyton who are standing in front of the glass door. So the gun is, like, aiming toward them. But I do want to note the fact that Jimmy doesn't seem to be aiming at anybody in particular. And as a matter of fact, I think, and I don't know if this was intentional or anything, but I think the fact that he was aiming toward Glass was kind of like him aiming at his own reflection. Ooh, look at you. (laughs) Sometimes I can have these deep analyses. But yeah, so... Because as you can see, like, he has, like, you know, toward the end of the episode, he has no idea that he shot Peyton. He had no idea that he hurt Peyton at all. So it just shows that he's not really paying attention to any particular person. It was always, like, an internal struggle for him instead. Yeah, you're right. He he just takes out that gun, and it he doesn't have a direction for it. He just wants to aim it. And you're right. Like, I think there's this, this element of self-hatred. He doesn't like himself. 
And then seeing that reflection, wow, that's a really powerful observation. Yeah, it's kind of far away, but, you know, so I I don't really think he's actually seen his reflection, but I do think that there's, like, something kind of powerful about that, him shooting that glass. And I think he's, like, taking out the gun to potentially just scare people. It's not meant to hurt anyone, but it's like, he wants, he feels powerless, like, from the night before when he was beat up to... Now, his locker was just torn apart. He has no power. So he's taking out that gun. It's almost like a threat, but he's he doesn't actually want to do anyone harm. And he actually closes his eyes when he shoots the gun. So it hits the glass, and then Peyton and Brooke are directly behind it. The looks on their face is so heartbreaking like Peyton is so terrified and and it's very interesting seeing like because I feel like uh both of them Sophia and Hillary they could have taken the scene and be like we're both scared but I feel like uh Peyton was the one who was scared and Brooke she I, I feel like her first instinct is like okay like we have to like duck down because you see like she has like the stern look on her face when she pulls Peyton down with her and it's just very interesting to see how these uh two actresses uh took uh took the performance differently yeah, that's really true. And we don't know at the time that Peyton gets shot in the leg. Which, how how does she get shot in the leg? I don't think we will ever know because the bullet is not even toward her leg. I was wondering the same thing. <laughs> Suspension of disbelief. <laughs> yep. So then Principal Turner obviously hears uh, the shot and he goes to make a code red announcement telling everyone to lock down and the secretary there is calling 911. At this point, everyone is scrambling out of the building or they're hiding in a room. Uh, We see Mouth actually in the AV room and he has no idea what's going on because he has headphones on. And the, I guess the room is like sound protected too. And then we move outside where Brooke is running out and- Before that, actually, uh, that, that Haley, you see her let in a bunch of students into the tutor center. We don't see who specifically enters the tutor center at this point. Yeah. And then we're outside. Yes. Yep. Keep <laughs> that, then we are outside and um, Brooke is running up to Lucas and Nathan saying that she can't find Peyton. And she said that, you know, there's a shooter in the school. Whitey's like, everyone get on the bus. But Lucas, you know, is, well, Nathan, first off, Wants to go back in to get Haley, of course. And Lucas is trying to stop him. Brooke manages to get on the bus, but Nathan and Lucas are going back into the school, which is, like, the worst thing you could do. Then we see the tutor center um, a little bit more, because Haley lets everyone in, locks the door, and we see... So the camera's interesting, the directing here, how... It's zooming in on the faces and it kind of pans across them, but starting with Haley, then Skills, and Rachel. Then we see, um, we don't know their names at the time, but Marcus and Abby. And then at the very end, we see that Jimmy got into the Tundra Summer, but no one knows that Jimmy was the, the shooter. Yeah, and it's one of those like I- traumatic irony right there where like we as the viewer know that these kids may be in danger. And it fades to black. That's when we go to our commercial break. And then we go to Whitey's office, and that's when Nathan and Lucas are together. Nathan is grabbing a baseball bat, and Lucas is like, what's your plan? And he says, yeah, I'm going to go into the tutor center and get Haley. And then Lucas says, your plan sucks. And that's when he tries to like really push forward to Nathan, like, Nathan, someone's got a gun. 
in here. And I really like Chad's delivery of that line. And I just think it's beautiful because it brings up the horrifying reality of the situation. And I don't know, I feel like it's so subtle, but it kind of gave me chills because it's like the reality, like these kids never had to deal with something like this. And this is like driving reality home to them. Somebody has a gun. Yeah, it's like sobering, you know? Mm-hmm. Like realizing that this could happen, like people could die. And then there's a part... Um, Nathan says to Lucas, the police are going to wait in game plan. They always do that. And, you know, to this day, that's still true. That's that's what they do. And it's interesting in 2006 to now how their game plan has not changed. And we're still going through this. And more and more kids are dying. And they still haven't changed their strategy. And it gives a lot of uh, similar vibes to what happened at Uvalde, where the police sort of stood by and didn't intervene and that's how people ended up dying and this is another part of the discussion that we dived into with Gavi as well so again if you want to hear us talk more about that go listen to that episode so Nathan is basically adamant about finding Haley (laughs) so that's where that scene's left like and you know when Nathan's stubborn like there's no convincing him otherwise so I think at this point he's gonna just keep trying to find Haley And then we move, we switch back to the Tudor Center and we see them all discuss whether they want to escape or actually stay there and, you know, wait until they get help. Yeah. And that's how we learn that, like, because Rachel suggests uh, breaking the windows to get out. And then that's what Haley's like, oh, it's just a courtyard. It's just for light. So basically they, we know as an audience now, they're trapped. Even like without Jimmy in the room with them, they are trapped. It's truly scary. And like speaking from a teacher, I used to be a teacher. So from that kind of perspective, it's like depending where you are in the building, like the door is locked. You could even be in a classroom without windows. Like there's sometimes no way out. Yeah. Other than that door, which is locked behind you. And it truly, truly is terrifying. And kids are put through this (laughs) all the time with these drills. Which kind of makes you think, like, why are schools set up that way? Because I can even think of, like, a few rooms and schools that I've been in. I mean, I haven't been a teacher, but even as a student, I'm trying to think back. Yeah, I've been in a few rooms like that, too, where there would be no escape. Mm-hmm. So why are schools set up that way? Is there a reason for that? I I don't know. A lot of schools are really old. So the layouts, you know, were coming from the perspective of these types of things happening, like when these schools were built, like they weren't really right. thinking about that kind of security, I guess. Right, and for sure. And also rooms in schools, like they can create more rooms by putting up like those dividers. Do you know what I'm talking about? So mm-hmm. in some buildings, they might have like those dividers to create more rooms. So that might in itself cause there to be no windows or, or whatever. Like, taking one really long, large room and making, like, several smaller rooms and out of it. Yeah, there's a lot of, ugh, it's just, it's really scary. Because I remember thinking, like, at times, like, well, if something actually does happen and this is not a drill, I guess we're going to try to get onto the roof. Because we did have access to the roof from where I was in my classroom, at one of my classrooms. <laughs> right. It's like, all these things kind of go through your head. Of what, what can we do to get out of here? And it shouldn't. 
So Marcus ends up referring to this shooter, who he doesn't know is Jimmy, as a psycho. And Jimmy says, why would you call them a psycho? I think that was a really interesting question. And then Marcus responds. He says something to do with them trying to kill us all, fat ass. It was like, that was like the worst reaction you could have. Like, yeah, like ignoring the fact that Jimmy even has a gun. Just like, don't, don't say this to anyone. Like, you should be fine. Like, you should be kind to everybody. It's, it's fucked up. But again, like, he's supposed to be fucked up. Yeah. And it's a glimpse of like why we're here to begin with. Cause this is the stuff that Jimmy has endured from other people. And here we are, unfortunately. Yep. And then we cut to the hallway and we see Lucas and Nathan together again. And they stumble upon the same place where that glass door was shattered. Lucas sees the broken glass. He sees that there's blood on the floor. And he says like, hey, Nathan, it could be Peyton. And Nathan's like, you don't know that. And Lucas is like, well, it is someone. The library doors don't lock. It's not safe. Which I feel like that brings up another point about school safety. Why don't the library doors have locks on That is inaccurate because that is not true. (laughs) Library doors lock. (laughs) Trust me. (gasps) Yeah? Okay. I mean, I don't know. (laughs) It would not be safe if the library doors did not lock. So I don't know, and I had this as a comment, too. I'm like, that makes zero sense. So, for example, the school I worked in, there were multiple doors in the library. Some of them always stayed locked because there were too many entrance points. And then there was always a door that was, like, open. for That was the entrance that you would go in. So, like, if there was a lockdown, then you would just have to worry about locking the one door because the other ones were always locked. Okay. <laughs> There's no way that that a library in this day and age would not have doors that lock. All right, cool. All right, so it was inaccurate. Cool. Yes, super inaccurate. <laughs> okay, um, but the the boys end up splitting up because Nathan goes off to find Haley and Lucas enters the library to try to see Peyton if she's there. And then during this moment, when Nathan walks away, Lucas says, hey, Nathan. And then there's silence. And then Nathan's like, yeah, you too, man. Because I feel like both of them have this realization, like, what do you say in this moment? Like, anything they say is sounds like it's going to be goodbye. And it's scary, I think. Yeah, that's really scary. And they're brothers, you know. So Lucas then walks into the library, and he sees, Pey- he finds Peyton behind a bookshelf, and her leg is bleeding, and she says some of glass um, cut her, but she can't walk. So they decide to just hide and wait it out, which is probably the best plan for the moment since they don't know where the shooter is at this point. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, oh god, the moment when, uh, when Lucas, like, kind of sneaks up on Peyton and scares her, that moment when, like, you know, Peyton lets out this little cry, that's just, that's so effective because you can tell, like, she is terrified because she has no idea, like, who's around the corner or anything. It's yep. really scary. Especially if she can't stand up, you know? Like, she, she couldn't, she can't really move at all. So she had no idea, like, she's basically stuck in place. Yeah, she would have been completely defenseless. Also, uh, one thing I want to know that during the commentary, uh, they mentioned that apparently the script had a moment where Lucas uh, ends up sneaking up on a statue, and then he got startled by it, which 
I'm kind of glad that scene got cut because I feel like it's not very effective for the audience because, like, we already know that, like, Jimmy is not in the library. So I don't think, like, you know, the fear would have been there. But, so I just want to note that there was a, there was originally more to the scene. Interesting. I, yeah, I don't think that's necessary because I feel like the fear is already palpable across the board. Like, every person yeah. so far, like, it's clear that there's fear here. But that's interesting that you bring that up because then we go to the hallway and Nathan sees mouth, but he doesn't like really realize it's mouth at first. <laughs> and he sees someone and kind of just like pushes them against the wall and then is like, what are you doing? And mm-hmm. mouth's like, I was in the AV room and then it I came out here and it's like dawn of the dead. And then Nathan's like, don't say dead. And explains that there's you know, make sure Mouth is quiet and explains that there's a shooter. So then they both end up walking together because Nathan still has the baseball bat. Yeah. I like the moment where Mouth, like, sees the baseball bat. He's like, I'm going to stay with you. (laughs) There's a lot of, like, really, like, there's some, like, funny moments littered throughout this episode because, and I feel like that's just, like, a realistic reaction to a traumatic event. Like, you're going to make, like, jokes here and there. Yeah. So. Yeah. I liked how, like, there's subtle jokes woven throughout. Um, but yeah, the two of them head off to the su- tutor center, and you also see that Mouth is kind of ducking behind Nathan as well. That's another little funny moment right there. And then we go back to the tutor center. Um, we learn that Skills is trying to get a cell signal. We learn that there's no cell signal. However, later on, that doesn't stop Jimmy from taking everyone's phones, and then Nathan texting Dan, so it's... It's all over the place <laughs> with its world building here, I think. Yeah. Service can be spotty in schools, especially, I'm sure, in 2006. <laughs> so who knows? But I just think it would have made more sense if, like, you know, like, nobody had a cell signal. And then it's like, oh, wait, there's some of them do. Some, yeah. I, I don't know. It, it, it just seemed like a weird conflict to have. But anyway, not the point I want to make. Um, so and then after that, we see we hear a knock on the door. Everybody gets a little bit startled, and then we see an ID under get pushed underneath, and that's when Haley realizes, oh my god, it's Nathan. Like, this is his driver's license. Like, this is Nathan. He's outside. And I really like how each character has a different reaction to the fact that there's somebody outside. Um, Both Marcus and Abby don't want to let him in. They're saying, don't let him in. And then there's Rachel and Skills, who are like, she can't leave him out there. And I just liked how we got to see, like, a bunch of different perspectives on how you could respond to this crisis. But then Haley uh, whispers from the door. She says, always. And forever. <laughs> and that's when you hear Nathan say on the other side. And that's when Haley tries to assure Marcus it's him. And then Marcus freaks out, says, don't open the door. And then that's when Skell's like, if she says it's him, it's him. Open the door. And then they let Nathan in. And Nathan tries to get everybody to leave. And then right before we fade to black, we see Jimmy pull the gun on everyone and says, hold on, nobody's going anywhere. So that's when they all know that the threat is in the room. Mm-hmm. And when we get back from the commercial break, we see everybody's trying to calm Jimmy down. And he's asking Abby, like, what's my name? My full name? And... Abby's crying. She has no idea. Rachel only knows him as the guy from the time capsule. I think Abby actually says Jim, but that's it. He wants... She says Jim, yes. Jimmy wants the full name. Mm Mm-hmm. And and Haley says, Jimmy Edwards. And she says, Jimmy, you're a good guy. 
And you're better than this. Jimmy tells, uh, talks to Nathan and says, are you scared? And he's like, yes, I'm scared. And then he screams at Nathan to tape a line down the center of the room. And did you notice, like, the little symbolic gesture that happens with Haley here? No. Uh, Haley is, like, holding Nathan back to protect him, but you notice, like, she has her hand over his heart. So that's kind of like a foreshadowing to where Jimmy ends up shooting himself at the end of the episode. Oh, wow. I didn't pick up on mm-hmm. that. Haley's also sneakily trying to call 911. And yes. that's when Jimmy takes the phone and actually speaks into it. And he's like, hi, 911. Here's the thing. If anyone comes even remotely close to the school, I start shooting students. You hear me? You come in here and your kids die. Yeah. I think, did you say we start shooting students? Because he did say we. Um, did he? I have I. Yeah. He, he, he definitely says we. We start shooting students. Because, you know, he tries to continue on with the narrative that the others will get you. So, yeah, he definitely says, we start shooting students. Oh, maybe I wrote that down wrong. Because mm-hmm. yeah, then even later on with the police, the police even say, like, you know, can you guarantee that he's the only student who walked in with a gun? So I feel like, you know, this message is supposed to get to the 911 dispatchers, make everybody think that there are more shooters in the school. Mm-hmm. True, true. Yeah, now it's like a hostage situation. And that's when Jimmy collects all the cell phones. And baseball bats and pepper sprays and everything else. Yep. So now everyone is pretty helpless. We shift outside the school and Dan is speaking to, Dan, who's the mayor, is speaking to Principal Turner. And he says, you're kidding me, right? How the hell can a kid waltz into a high school with a handgun? Where the hell's the security? The metal detectors. And Principal Turner tells Dan that the school board that Dan's actually was on or is on voted against the metal detectors because it makes the school look unsafe. <sighs> Which, yeah, I don't really know how I feel about metal detectors in a school to begin with, but um, honestly, at this point, I guess there probably should be. Right. But there's also like the, the, the there's also the when Principal Turner says, so he says, security guards carry a nightstick stand handguns scare people they need probable cause to shake a kid down because god forbid we violate their rights which again brings up a whole interested little conversation i feel like is it ethical to try to like you know treat every kid like they're a criminal i don't know i know i thought that was an interesting tidbit too i don't really know what to make make of it Yeah, me neither. And I feel like the scene's not trying to take a stance either. It's like, I I wonder if it's supposed to be pro, like, safety. I'm not entirely sure. And then we find out that 911 has a possible identification of one of the shooters. Mm Mm-hmm. So, we don't really know what they know yet. Right. And then we cut to the gym, and we we see a woman tearfully calling out Jimmy Edwards' name. And we later find out that this is his mom. And um, we also see Brooke is talking to the police, and she says she just wants to go home. And then they say, not without a parent. So then Brooke tries to tell them, my parents don't live here. And the police are like, well, you're going to be here for an awful long time then. Which, ugh. what do you do in this sort of situation? I'm like, Brooke, I'm hoping, is emancipated from her. Well, maybe she's not. Maybe she still is, you know. Didn't we talk about that in a previous episode recently? Probably. (laughs) That we are assuming that she's emancipated, but, like, if she really was, then she wouldn't need an adult, I don't think. But Yeah. Just get any adult. Just get any adult, which 
later on we know she ends up calling Karen, but yeah, this situation is just like, oh my gosh. What what is she supposed to do? Yeah, she's like kind of she's trapped and none of her friends are with her too. Like let's note that as well. Like she's like she, there's a bunch of people there, yes, but for the most part she is alone. I find it interesting how they chose which characters would be in which location of this episode. Like they chose to have Brooke all by herself because I as we'll get to in a little, like there's the whole media angle. So I guess that's what is being represented there. But Brooke is really not in the... Initially, she was there for the gunshot, but she isn't, you know, in the... She was able to escape the school, so she... Her storyline takes place outside of it the whole time. Mm Mm-hmm. I think that's very uh, interesting if you think about Brooke's character arc, too, because she was always the it girl. She was always in on everything. And here's a situation where, thankfully, I should say, she's not in. But at the same time, that's given her a lot of trauma because... Since she's not in the school and she doesn't know, like, what's happening to her friends and to her loved ones, it's just, uh, it's kind of an inverse from, like, how we normally see Brooke. Like, she's not with the quote-unquote in-crowd right here. Yeah, that is a good point. And I guess she just represents, like, the not knowing. In these situations, there's, you know, when you're waiting for the phone call about your child or or a loved one, or whoever, like, you don't know what's happening inside the building because you're not there. You're not, you're not part of the action, I guess. So Brooke, I guess, really represents, you know, that helpless feeling. Mm-hmm, exactly. And this is still, like, a traumatic moment for her as well, too. Yeah, because there's trauma on all sides. Like, there's trauma, literally, like, physical trauma with Peyton because she was shot. And then what I just said about Brooke. And then the Tudor Center kids are, that's more, even more obvious because Jimmy is the shooter and he is in the room. So the threat is directly there. It really covers all angles. I like that about the episode. Yeah, absolutely. But another perspective that we see in this gym, the uh, police officers are going to, they go to Mrs. Edwards and she asks, is my son Okay. And then the police ask her to come with them. And it's it's kind of interesting because I feel like there's some type of knowing look on her face. Like where she real- she either realizes that something is wrong mm-hmm. or maybe there's some part of her that realizes like, hey, my son is doing this. Or or something happened to him. There is worry when, when they, you know, go up to her and say, come with us. So either did her son do something or was something done to him? There could be a lot going through her mind. Yeah, I would have had canon that, like, because because I feel we uh, we learn later on, like, you know, Jimmy has had some mental health issues throughout his life, like, with overdose on antidepressants. So I wonder if, like, Mrs. Edwards hears this from the police and realizes, like, oh, God, like, here's my son. He's acting out. So I just wonder. And, it, and it's not obvious. It's never stated, like, in the scripts. I'm just completely headcanon this, but I think there is some part of her that knows. I mean, that would make a lot of sense. Because we learn about that backstory. We're, we're going to get to that um, shortly here. We learn about Jimmy's backstory and struggles for the first time in this episode. So those pieces kind of all fit together. So she potentially could have, you know, suspected for sure. And do you want to take us to the library or shall I? Yeah, let, let's head to the library. We're back with Lucas and Peyton. 
And Peyton actually tells Lucas that, you know, the shooter was Jimmy, Lucas's old friend. And she says, but he didn't look evil or angry. He just looked scared. And that, to me, is also another supporting fact about this being about mental health more than than gun violence, necessarily. Right, exactly. I feel like the fact that it, there's a gun like thrown into the mix, I feel like this episode could get thrown into conversations about gun control and school shootings, but... I feel like a, a line like that, like Peyton, who was who was literally shot at too, doesn't seem to blame Jimmy for what happened to her. She's recognizing the fact that he looks scared. I know, and if you you think back to that moment, like when he he points the gun, and he shoots, and he's closing his eyes at the same moment, and then as soon as it hits the glass, and you hear like the noise of it all, he opens his eyes, and there's just like terror, like conficus plays that so well like Mm -hmm. there is this utter terror like what did i just do kind of terror yeah he's a fantastic fantastic actor i you know i can't imagine anyone else in this part absolutely not um do you want to go back to the tutor center now yep so now we're we are back there and They are, Jimmy's like threatening the gun still. And Haley says, would you really do that? Would you shoot us? Because I don't think that you would. Yeah. And I want to, I want to note too, like Haley is, uh, is saying that in response to Jimmy being like, hey, if anyone crosses that line, just don't. Like he can't even finish the sentence. So. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, it just brings the question, like, it, was he ever going to shoot? And I, Haley doesn't think so. I don't think so either. And then Jimmy's like, when was the last time we hung out? You're as bad as my best friend, Mouth, who totally blew me off. And Mouth responds, you didn't want to do anything. And Jimmy says, you tell yourself that. But you change and you know it. You became just like the rest of them. Mm-hmm. Were you? Oh, I was about to say. I don't. I don't want to interrupt you. I'm like, I was going to yeah, go. say what you Rachel know. was going to say. Okay, cool. <laughs> We're being so polite with this episode. <laughs> I like it. Uh, uh, Rachel interrupts Jimmy and says, "Don't, don't blame him for living his life. This is not his fault. This is your fault." And Jimmy's like, "No, it's your fault." And then he continues, "Do you think this is what I wanted? What do you think I got up today and wanted this?" I just wanted to wanted it to stop. So which is another reason like to support the fact that like he really he wasn't planning this. He didn't mm-hmm. really want to get up today and do this. Yep. He just is lost. But it it's not fair that he's blaming mouth. Like you can be uh, upset with someone for blowing you off. Like I'm not I'm not saying that mouth didn't do that. But you can't put all of this, all of your struggles, onto someone else. And math is not the only reason. Like, one friend blowing you off can cannot create <laughs> this, you know? Th- this is major. Exactly. And Rachel brings up a really great point. Like, this is not his fault that this is happening. This, you're the one who decided to bring a gun to school, and you decided to hold everybody hostage. This decision is still on you, regardless. And uh, 
Also, Marcus seems to be formulating a plan. He says, like, hey, we, we could charge you, you know? Um, and then that's when Jimmy says, like, yeah, well, if you do that, if you if you uh, subdue me, then the others will get you. And then Haley's like, are there others, Jim? And then Nathan's like, no, no, no. It's just you. And then Jimmy responds by saying, you think so? You really think I'm the only one? Then ask yourself this. You ever treat someone like crap in this school or left anyone out? You ever broken up with someone in the time it takes to pass a note and disappear or talk trash behind their back? Or maybe you just ignored it all, you know, while you worry about the big game or the prom or or the big sale for the pep club. You ask yourselves that and then you tell me, is anyone else out there? And then the phone rings from inside the desk. It's uh, Marcus's phone. And, you know, he says, oh, it's the ringtone for my mom. Which, that's such a subtle little moment, like, you know, just the fact that, like, hey, we're acknowledging that, like, this new character, like, has a family and has other loved ones. It's it's so subtle, but kind of beautiful, I think. And uh, Jimmy starts smashing everybody's phones against the wall, and that's when Marcus charges, tries to get the gun from the desk, and Jimmy is uh, ends up aiming the gun toward Marcus, and... It's a very, very tense moment. Everybody tries to de-escalate the situation. Everybody's trying to get Marcus to, you know, pull back and whatnot. And Nathan says, like, help me, Skills. And then Skills is like, Marcus. <laughs> and Marcus turns around and like, what? And then Skills knocks Marcus out. And he talks to Nathan. It's like, does that help you out? Dude, that was like another funny moment, kind of. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a slight humor there in, in what uh, Skills says. For sure, for sure. And I want to talk a little bit about skills in this episode, too, because it's kind of interesting to see him being very reactive to a lot of different situations. Because I feel like in a normal episode of One Tree Hill, he's usually very sassy and quick-witted. This episode, he is not. And yeah, that line is funny, but the fact that he's like reacting, like Nathan's like, hey, I need your help. And then Skills is like, okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> and then there's even a moment like earlier on in the episode where like uh he's talking to jimmy and he says yo jimmy we used to be friends and then uh and then skills is like oh like so it's gonna be like that all right so it's very interesting to see him being in a reactive stance here for this episode i agree we have not seen much of skills being in like a serious role a lot of t- most of the time there's humor attached to his storyline so the fact that he was, I'm really glad that he was included in on this episode and he was in the Tudor Center, because I think they could have, you know, easily not included, like, more side characters. Right. I agree. So I'm glad about that. And that mouth was included as well. Mm-hmm. Do you want to take us to exterior tree hell high? Yes. So we are outside the school and we're back with Dan and the police officer. And the police officer says to him, we know where one kid's at. Now, can you guarantee me that's the only kid who walked into school with a gun this morning? Look, man, this is a static situation. If and when it becomes active, we will intervene. But until then, there's a mandated procedure. We secure the area. We wait for the crisis negotiator, and we pray to God that Tree Hill High doesn't become just another catchphrase that people only whisper about for the rest of time. I wanted to read that quote because it kind of goes back to what we were saying earlier, how, like, their procedure has not changed from 2006 till now. <laughs> so you still Ugh, fuck the police. see the same thing, and then it's like, 
we pray to God that Tree Hill High doesn't become just another catchphrase. And it's amazing to me to, to hear that line and to think, like, we know all of these shootings, whether they're at schools or other places, like, you know it by the location. And it is, it is like a, a catchphrase. I don't know if catchphrase is really, like, the best word. <laughs> it's kind of a little insensitive, but... But I think it's supposed to yeah. be, honestly. I think it's supposed to be insensitive. All of these things that happen in today's world, like, you know it by the location. Like, Uvalde or, um... And now they're all... There's so many of them now, like, I can't even keep track of them in my head. So it's yeah, like Columbine. Exactly. That one is... You know, that one always is the most, like, prominent one in people's head because it was really, like... Not necessarily the beginning, but but kind of. Yeah. I remember, like, watching this episode when it aired. I remember Columbine being, like, a big... Not a big thing. That sounds insensitive to say, but it was it was like it was a quote unquote catchphrase that people yeah. kept bringing up. And now you know it's hard to keep track because there's so many, and it's really upsetting. For real. And then uh, what happens in this scene? Uh, the police officer walks away, and then Keith comes and joins Dan. And Keith is like, "Is it true? Is it Jimmy Edwards?" And then Dan nods and says, "One of them." And Keith tries to say. I know him. He's he's not a bad kid. And then Dan very bluntly says, he is now. Which, that's a lot to take in because it's like, does, does this automatically ruin Jimmy's life? I ugh. I don't know what stance to take on that. I know. From the perspective of him bringing a gun into school, I mean, that, that kind of does make him a bad kid. But we are about to find out a lot of Jimmy's struggles. He's going to go into mm-hmm. depth and share that but like not everyone knows all of that the kids in the tutor center know it but not everyone else it's tough because like yeah if you think of this episode as a, from the perspective of like a, actually a, a real school shooting then okay you can say he's a bad kid but like with all of the context that we have and we know this wasn't planned and he has a lot of struggles i don't i think the answer is not it's not black and white no not at all so then we see Keith console Karen because she's really upset about, you know, not knowing where Lucas is. And then we flash to the gym and we see the footage of Jimmy and the time capsule being played on a laptop that the reporter is watching. And Brooke sees all of this happening. The reporter's on the yeah. phone and she was talking about airing this in a live feed. And her, her quote was, yeah, it's gold here. And... Brooke comes up to the reporter and says, like, you're being really insensitive. And the reporter, like, tries to get coverage from Brooke, like, you know? Yep. And Brooke says, you should be ashamed of yourself and and walks away. (sighs) Yeah. However. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) um, So, as Caitlin just said, Brooke says, you should be ashamed of yourself. However, if you have the DVDs or if you look up the scene on YouTube, the scene is actually a little bit extended. And Brooke goes off on this whole tangent, I guess you could say, about how how the media treats uh, survivors and whatnot. And honestly, I can't say it as well as Sophia Bush, so I am going to play the clip right here. I'm here with student council president Brooke Davis. Brooke, can you put into words how you might be feeling about this tragedy? You should be ashamed of yourself. There are kids inside our school fearing for their lives right now. 
terrified that someone's going to put a gun in their face and pull the trigger. And you want to know how I'm feeling? Our pain is not a commodity for you. It's not a news bite to boost your ratings, because tomorrow, or the next day, or the next week, when we go back to school, changed forever by a day that will never leave us, where are you going to be? At the next tragedy, thrusting your microphone in the face of the next fractured person, asking them how they feel? Lady, that is not journalism. You are not contributing anything to society. You are buzzards circling the carnage, but you prey on the living. That is how I'm feeling, but something tells me you're not going to air that. The part that gets me about that clip is when Brooke says, you are buzzards circling the carnage, but you prey on the living. Woo-wee. Yeah, that's a lot. And I'm going to get into some of my <laughs> some of my thoughts on her monologue, which I do, which I agree with, but... I'll stick some issues with, um, but I do want to note like why this particular scene was cut. So it's because it was a oneer, and it was just focused like on Brooke the entire time. So they couldn't cut anything, and they just did not have time for it, unfortunately, because the episode would have been too long. Um, I feel like if this episode were to air today, they would have just aired like an extended episode, and that scene would have been added in. But you know, this is 2006. There was like more time constraints, but also the uh, the creator during the commentary. Uh, he brings up the pretty valid point. He says, am I casting stones at a beast I'm a part of by trying to comment on the media's fascination with tragedy while also writing a monologue about a tragedy? So it's kind of interesting because, yeah, this episode is about a tragedy and it is focusing on that. So it's kind of weird to, like, you know, put the mirror up to yourself in a little bit. Yeah, that's true. Um, I guess a slightly hypocritical in a way (laughs) a little bit yeah i got that you know i can see it because like i think there is there you know it's important that the media shares this you know of course it is like this stuff needs to be reported but i think it's just the manner in which it's being reported there is a a responsibility there and this woman in this scene is trying to um make this like a sensational story and that is yeah. wrong. Like, to say it's gold here, like, like their tragedy is what's going to get you views and clicks and coverage and attention. <laughs> That's not the point. The point is to uh, share information so the general public knows what's happening, not to get those clicks, necessarily. Um, yes. I'm sure you have a way different perspective than me, so <laughs> being a journalist. Well, here's the thing, like, I, I do agree with this tangent, but there is, like, it's it's a very gray area for me, and maybe I'm, like, very sensitive to this uh, particular monologue because um, I haven't really talked about this, like, publicly yet, but I've recently returned to journalism. So, uh, let me go off on a tangent, so just give me a few minutes to just go off, Caitlin, and <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry here. for all the silence. <laughs> <laughs> so this monologue and not even not not even the cut part but just in general this storyline it's critiquing journalists for exploiting a tragedy i get that um at the publication i worked for i can tell you that the head boss was always excited when somebody was murdered it's really fucked up but the publisher knew that people would read the publication if there was a tragedy so they were aware of that, 
Meanwhile, like, a few people on the staff, myself included, we were always uncomfortable with covering these tragedies. We did not like covering these tragic events. I would much, much rather publish these, like, feel-good news stories. I did not want to cover murder or tragedies or people dying. I did not want to do that. But I understood, like, why these need to be covered. The public has a right to be informed, of course. I get that. Um, But overall, like, you know, there were a few, like, good people on the staff, quote-unquote, um because I, I feel weird calling myself one of those good people. <laughs> but, like, I did not like covering these stories, so that's my hashtag not all journalists argument. However, let's take a second to just put up a mirror to ourselves as readers and viewers, because, you know, just from working at this publication, I can tell you for a fact that the tragedies that my publication wrote about, they always got the most clicks on the website. They always got the most shares on social media. So the data is there. Like, people, like, consume this content. They read this. They watch this. Like, look at us. Like, we we listen to true crime podcasts, for crying out loud. Like, we are obsessed with tragedy. So my big question is, is it the journalists who are the problem? Or is it us, the readers and viewers, who keep consuming this content? Which is it? And I don't think there's a correct answer to that question because it's not 100% black or black and white. For either side of that, it's gray for both. But I just felt like I needed to say that because I don't know who really is to blame here. Ooh. Yeah, that poses a really good question. Because it's true. I, you know, people are obsessed with tragedy. I don't have an answer. I, I really don't. Um, yeah, and I don't think there is a right one. I don't think there is one. And if listeners, feel free to, like, reach out to us on social media, like, you know, chime in on our Discord, like, let us know what you think. But it's very complicated, I think. I just don't, what I don't like about this is how the reporter is insensitive. Oh, yeah, she's terrible. Like, this, this reporter reminded me of my publisher, for example. That, to me, is wrong. But I understand journalists' jobs and, like, what the media wants to read and what people want to read. It, it's just so complicated. I don't have the words here, Jeremy. I, I really don't. But it's, I think it's a question that needs to be posed. I just think reporters should be responsible. Yeah. And, and like you said, like, you know, journalists are doing their jobs. And, yeah, they like, sometimes journalists can exploit tragedy for clicks and views. But I feel like when you are working with the actual people like this journalist should have been a little bit more sensitive with approaching it like yeah maybe in her head she could think like oh this is gonna get lots of views like i'm gonna get a pulitzer ha 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 but at the same time you gotta be sensitive when you are interviewing these subjects i can tell you like i you know back when i used to interview people who were um who were assaulted for example like there is a right way to approach these people because you don't want to make them into a spectacle. You want to treat them like they're human beings, and that's what the journalist is doing wrong here. Yes, I fully agree with that. Absolutely fully agree. The question, another question that I have about this is why is a reporter in a gym with all these students to begin with? Like, I don't know what happens when when these school shootings occur. Like, where are journalists actually allowed to be? It just seems a little weird that she's in the gym with all those students. I don't, I feel like that in itself is insensitive. Like, these people just escaped. Let them be. Let them find their parents. They don't know what's going on, you know? I don't know why one would be in there. But I don't, I don't know how that relates to, like, reality. You know, 
what goes on today. I, I imagine reporters come and are outside of the location or in the surrounding area. It's not right for her, for a reporter to be in there with all the kids. Just think about all the trauma that they just endured and the wondering of what's happening to their classmates who are in the building still. Like, it just seems like you need to be aware of that. And this woman was just not. It was all to report and to get the story. Mm-hmm. So then we were back at the Tudor Center and all of the kids are hearing the uh, helicopters outside. So I... Not really sure if the helicopters would be reporters, like some of them were wondering, or if they would be, you know, backup for the police type thing. Yeah, because Marcus tries to say it was it's a SWAT team. If you see little red dots on your head, you might want to duck. Yeah, yeah. I know. That was that was another insensitive comment. Yeah. And then Nathan asks Jimmy, which I think is, is interesting, he says, What do you want to happen? And it, I don't think Jimmy really has an answer. He, he says, uh, yeah, what, crap a million dollars and a plane ticket to Bolivia. Like, uh, and he just says, like, he doesn't know. He's trying to be, like, sarcastic and try to, you know, make a joke. But he really has no idea what he wants. And then Rachel chimes in and she says, maybe you could just give up. You didn't hurt anybody, did you? And then they all ask if he shot anyone. And Jimmy says he doesn't know. And they, they try to convince him that it might not be so bad. He, like, doesn't have a record. And then Marcus starts to laugh. <sighs> and he's like, you're kidding, right? The guy shot up a school. I'm not lying for him. He pointed a gun at my head and threatened to kill me. I hope they fry his ass. And uh, just, like, shut up, Marcus. Like, you're just trying to de-escalate the situation. Like, do you want to get out of this? Like... It's so Can you imagine saying that to someone who has a gun and is threatening to right. keep you in here? It just seems a little unrealistic that someone would be that, like, brazen to <laughs> say those things. I mean, yeah, I, I, I hear that critique, but it it didn't really bother me. It's like, it, I mean, it bothers me in the sense, like, you know, like, God, you're so stupid. Just like, yeah. no, don't do it. But I feel like it makes sense for somebody to react this way. Somebody is being cocky. Somebody is being a jackass here. I, I, and I think Marcus Coloma does a good job here. So, yeah. I feel like I always have to give a disclaimer. When I say that I hate Marcus, I mean, like, I, I like I hate him, like, if I was within the narrative. I think this actually is an interesting character, to be honest. Well, it's like we said, like, there's a representation of everyone. Like, everyone has different feelings, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And then we see our, the next set of feelings from Abby. And to me, this is one of the more interesting quotes of the episode. She says, what's wrong with you? He's just a kid. We're all just kids and we just have this life. And the things you say and do, we feel that. How can you have so much hate in your heart? How can you act like it doesn't matter? It does matter. What happened to us, huh? We're just kids. We can't be like this. It's not possible. And I wonder in that moment, is she talking to Jimmy or Marcus or both? That's my question. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like throughout this episode, I am getting the feeling that Abby was also bullied and she was also troubled as well. Possibly. And we don't really get much of Abby. Like, we don't really, we don't get like any confirmation about that one way or the other, but that's my impression of her. Yeah, the fact that she starts that whole monologue with what's wrong with you, 
like it's almost like she starts talk talking to Marcus, but then it can kind of apply to what everything that Jimmy's doing too. And like Yeah, exactly. She's in the disbelief that like we're kids. We're all kids and look what what we're doing to each other. Mm-hmm. And then we see uh Rachel try to tell Jimmy seven hundred days high school out of twenty or thirty thousands. Can't you see past that? It's only seven hundred days. And I really like that quote because it really puts it in perspective that all this pain that you're going through, it's all temporary. While that is very true, I think as a teenager in high school, time just moves slower. And oh, I definitely feel that. Mm-hmm. It's harder to see that. Like the fact that Rachel can see that, you know, is is very mature of her. But yeah. I don't think most kids can see that because four years feels like a long time. But I feel like, you know, like we're living examples of that. Like, you know, like we, we got through high school. Not every day was great, but you know what? We got through it because you know what? It was only 700 days. Yeah. And it, that's a hopeful way of thinking about it, too. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that's just, that's a mentality that I try to like uh, put in like everyday life as well. Like whenever like I'm going, it's harder to see that as a teenager, but like now that I'm in my late 20s, fuck, I said my first time broad age <laughs> You really want to be in your twenties because that's the second time you've done that. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna keep that. Yeah, my, now that I'm in my late twenties, um, whenever I am going through like a rough time, I always have to tell myself, like, you know what, this is only temporary. Yeah, and it's not going to last forever. So I just feel like that's like a good lesson that anybody could take with them. It's really true, but unfortunately, Jimmy doesn't really like that response from Rachel, and and he says the following. And how many of these days do I get back? Do I get back the days I got spit on, or the day I learned to look at the floor when I walked the halls? Or how about the day my dad came to pick me up and saw me getting my ass kicked on the quad and realized his son was a loser? Do you ever see the look in your father's eyes when he realizes that? Do I get that day back? Because I saw that same look the day he left me and my mom. There's, like, a lot to unpack there, you know? So, he, you know, he's coming from a, a divorced family. We're, we're getting that revelation, so clearly that that's really difficult to handle. And he doesn't have a good relationship with his dad. He's embarrassed by the bullying, but also embarrassed for looking like a loser. Like, he he's worried about the impression of what, how his dad sees him, basically. Mm-hmm. And I really like that there's a moment where Nathan also tries to emph- empathize with him. He says, that sucks. Sorry, man. Yeah. And Marcus actually even says, people suck, okay? It's just high school, man. Which I like that little human moment from mm-hmm. him right there. And then that's when Jimmy says, yeah, there's always college. And then Math tries to remind him, says, yeah, MIT, remember Jim? And then that's when... Jimmy says he was rejected because he didn't have enough activities. And while Nathan does say, like, well, one school isn't the end of the world, Jimmy says that, well, it is for me. It's the end of my world. Mm-hmm. And then Marcus is like, okay, so all this because you didn't get into college? All this because you're not popular? And Jimmy says, no, all this because I'm tired of it. Which comes back to that tired quote mm. that I was referring to based on the, the title of the episode. One thing I just want to mention from Drama Queens is that Sophia, she made a comment saying, 
everyone is telling telling the truth even though their truths are different and i feel like the scene really like reveals that we get to mm-hmm. see different perspectives and angles of this whole thing and a lot of things are revealed a lot is expressed and i just i like to see how it's it's not just focusing on jimmy but we're like we're getting to see the other perspectives too so i thought that was a really good point that she made and i i totally see it in this episode yeah, absolutely. Everybody has a different truth. Um, which you saying that just reminded me of like another moment. This happens later on in the commentary, but this is just a good organic time to bring it up now. Um, apparently there was a apparently a moment in the script where everybody in the Tudor Center is talking about a Spanish teacher that they all hate. So even though like all of them like, you know, are so different and they have like so many different views, they all agree that a teacher is terrible. They all have something that they could agree on. And I feel like that's like a good point because I feel like if you're in the room in a room long enough with a bunch of people, like you're gonna find something that you have in common or something that you agree on, you know? And I yeah. feel like that kind of humanizes this whole situation. Like Jimmy feels like an outsider. In reality, is he as much of an outsider as he thinks he is? If he got to talk to these people and these people got to talk to him, probably not. They could find something to talk about and relate on. Right. All right. So now we are back at the library. I was about to say, yeah, I want you to talk about this scene. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) This scene. (laughs) Go on. Okay, so Peyton, at this point, is getting weaker, and Lucas is trying to get her to stay awake, so he's like, tell me about a good day to distract her. And then Peyton delivers this monologue. We had a snow day. Sixth grade. Do you remember? It was like this whole other world. Just came in overnight and took hours away. And Brooke, she came over. We made a snow fort with a tunnel. And we stayed inside there all day. It seemed so safe, like everything was okay. Like everything our world was about to become, maybe we could just stop it. Stay little kids for one more day. But then it got cold. Kinda like now. They're gonna come now. All of them. The reporters, the psychologists, the analysts, and the so-called experts. They're gonna try to make sense of this. But they're not gonna be able to. But even if we do make it out of here, we are always going to carry it with us. It's never going to be the same. And I really, I really like that quote because the moment when Peyton says they're going to try to make sense of this, but they're not going to be able to. And I feel like that's just the truth. Like, how can you make sense of this? Either in real life or like even us, like looking in at, at a fictional world as podcasters, like what is there to make sense of? There's so many different truths in this situation. I know. And I feel like, you know, as we talk about with Gavi, like more our understanding of why these things happen has changed from 2006. But at the same time, even if we have those statistics in hand, it's still all senseless to me. Mm -hmm. While we may be able to pinpoint certain reasons, it still doesn't make sense. How yep. does it get to this point, you know? It's a lot to absorb, and um, Peyton's really right to say it's never going to be the same, because it's true. With each tragedy, mm-hmm. to this day, you know, the world's never the same. Yeah. 
And we can keep politicizing this. And for the record, I think we should, with regard to conversations about gun control and whatnot. Yeah, we should be politicizing this, but regardless of like you know how you try to politicize it i feel like the deeper meaning is that there still is a tragedy and it still happened regardless it's a human issue beyond Mm -hmm. while politics um could help in terms of gun control yes it's a human issue it's not a political issue this this should be you know we should be protecting our fellow humans especially Mm -hmm. the young and vulnerable yeah, like, yeah. rather than make it about, like, oh, like, you know, guns should be allowed, guns should be banned, like, like let's not even make it about that. Let's make it about, like, hey, like, why don't we protect people? We, we should care about people here. That's a whole rant in itself, Jeremy. Which we do talk about in our <laughs> discussion about <laughs> coffee! We're really getting out repetitive here, but it is a really good discussion. <laughs> yes. What do you think about this whole snow memory of Peyton's? Um... I don't know if I really had any, like, hardcore thoughts about it. I feel like it was just, like, her saying that we, we I had the safe space, and the safe space got, like, caved in, just like right yeah. now. That's how I took it, but I didn't really know if there was a deeper symbolic meaning. Did you take anything from it? No, I didn't. Um, I think you're right, yeah. The snow just really represents, like, this perfect day that she had mm-hmm. with her best friend, and, like, you're right, the fort kind of is provides security, and... Right now, she feels helpless. To, but the fact that she was able to think of the story when she's bleeding out is, like, beyond me. <laughs> I would be like, I don't know a good day. I couldn't tell you. I especially wouldn't go into this elaborate story. But, uh, you know, only TV. Only TV. She does. I mean, Hillary does a fantastic job with this monologue. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, Caitlin, that kind of uh, reminds me of, like, what I always do, like, with you. Not just with you, but with anybody. But whenever, like, you're going through a rough time, I'll, I'll be like, so tell me about something that made you <laughs> smile recently. And then I did that back to you when you were going through a tough time. <laughs> you did. <laughs> and I personally think it helps. It's just, like, it puts you in perspective that, like, hey, like, things are rough right now, but you know what? There still is something to smile about, whether it's yeah. a happy memory yeah. or, you know, just those little moments in life. I totally agree. Yep. But granted, like, we did not get shot in the leg for any of our situations, so no. I don't know what that would be like. <laughs> and actually, this is the moment where Peyton asks Lucas, it's not glass, right? It's not actually glass in my leg. And so she knows it's a bullet. Mm-hmm. Lucas confirms that for her. And then the iconic quote Peyton says to Lucas, you're always saving me. And Lucas says, somebody's got to. Oh, damn. And then Peyton says, if I say I love you right now, will you hold it against me? Because I've lost a lot of blood. Come here. She kisses him. Just in case you can't keep your promise. And I have to say, the musical score in this moment is really good. It is also used again in a later scene that I won't get into. But um, the score is embedded in my head. And I guess that's what makes me a lane shipper. (laughs) This moment right here? like Not really this scene, but it's used again in another scene. So that's why it's more so embedded in my head. But yeah trauma bonding. Oh, yeah. Um, we'll get more into that in later episodes. That's another great moment that we talk about with Gavi as mm-hmm. well. <laughs> but, like, can you really hold it against someone for kissing them? 
when you're like near death. Yeah, exactly. At the same time, this is a pretty big moment for the show because this is, at the end of the night, it is a serialized show with continuing storylines. However, even though this is a big moment, I feel like this scene does feel very natural, just like you said. Can you really hold it against somebody if they're going through that? Yeah, this does feel very natural. It doesn't feel scandalous or soapy. It just feels normal. Yeah. At the same time, it's like, it it does make me, like, kind of annoyed that they had to go here. I, I mean, I love Leighton, but, like, they had to go here in this episode. Like, while it does feel natural. Oh, wow. Interesting. I love how I'm the one, like, defending the scene. <laughs> I mean, in a way, like, yes, it feels natural, like, something like this could happen because you're... You're, like, in a really vulnerable moment. You don't know if you're going to get out of this alive. You don't know what's going to happen next. But at the same time, like, with these characters, like, they had to bring them back together for this kiss in this moment. Like, it couldn't have been more of an authentic experience where they were, it was just, like, a normal day. Like, or later down the line or whatever, they had to, like, throw this in here in this episode. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. It doesn't bother me. I think it makes sense, honestly. You just know it's going to stir the pot, though. Like, while maybe the yes. moment itself feels natural, like, you know it's, for the larger story, you know this is going to stir the pot. How could it not? Yeah, of co- yeah, of course. Like, like I get that. But at, at the same time, it's it's like one of those things where I feel like you can defend Peyton if, uh, like, let's say if Brooke were to ever find out about this, you could, like, kind of understand Peyton's motivation behind it. It's not like, you know, they were, they were making out in a motel room like they were in season one. Like, this feels like... It, this feels understandable how it happened. Yeah. So. I, I still I, agree with I that, like but eh, we can talk about it as we get deeper into the into the season. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll hold off for now. So let's go back to the gym where we see there's a family hugging and Brooke is just looking on at them. And then that's when the journalist comes up to Brooke and says, that warm your heart think America would tune into that every night. And I love the Brooke is like, have you seen the ratings for 7th Heaven? <laughs> <laughs> this was uh, during uh, 7th Heaven's final season, by the way, this uh, episode aired. Uh, well, no, it wasn't the final season, actually. It was the second to last season. It was supposed to be the final season. Then the next season got picked up for the CW, just randomly. Anyway. Yeah, I remember that. Vaguely. Not gonna go on a tirade about that, but it should be noted, like, Seventh Heaven had, like, five to seven million viewers at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Like, the the ratings were pretty high for Seventh Heaven, so, yeah, Brooke is absolutely right. Like, yeah, people do like to see this stuff. People like to see the wholesome shit. And I also just think it's always funny when a show on the WB is referenced in another show on the WB. I just think it's, like, kind of funny to think about. (laughs) And then that's what uh, the journalist says. She's like, so, um, yeah, I exposed tragedy, but how much time did you spend with Jimmy Edwards? How dare her shame Brooke? Oh, yeah. I agree. Why? And I don't understand this. That's like the messaging in this whole episode, though. I don't understand it. I... Yes, I do understand that, like, like is the episode trying to promote that message? Um, how I choose to reclaim it overall is that, like, this is something that Brooke is getting blamed for. Yes. 
and she is internalizing this thing that she wasn't friends with Jimmy Edwards. Is the, but is the show actually trying to say, yeah, she was in the wrong because she didn't talk to Jimmy Edwards? And I don't think it necessarily is. What else would it be doing right now, though? I am choosing to reclaim this a little bit, which, yeah, I understand why you think it's trying to drive the message home to the viewers. Like, oh, it's your fault if you're not friends with, like, these loaders. Like, you're the reason why the the shooting is happening. But I don't think the show is necessarily trying to say that. I think it's just trying to, like, you know... Let's say you're a Brooke Shoes here. I feel like you could internalize this and think like, oh God, is there anything I could have done? Is there anything I could have done to be better? So I feel like that's just natural to internalize this like inner shame. So you're saying like they use the journalist in order to like have people reflect on on a natural yeah. feeling that, that may happen? Yeah, exactly. And it's not Brooke's fault. But I feel like, you know, we needed that journalist to try to, like, push that feeling into Brooke. Because cause at the end of the day, I feel like they... I feel like the thing that makes this complicated, if this was in a book, like, let's say if this was, like, in a novel, we would have heard Brooke's, like, inner thoughts. And Brooke would have been like, yeah, like, was this my fault? Because I did, I wasn't friends with Jimmy Edwards. But instead, because we're in TV, we need another character to say that. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So, like, yeah, I get that, and... And people are going to take, like, whatever message they want out of this little storyline. Uh, but that's how I am choosing to see that. But everyone's mileage may vary. Okay. I see that perspective. Cool, cool, cool. I still think it is a little weird of messaging, though. Like, even not, it not is, really sure yeah. what their actual intention was. Um, we can only speculate. But I just don't like putting it on other people because, like, that is... It's a really unhealthy way to look at this. Because then you see Brooke go outside and cry. So based on that conversation with the reporter and then Glenda, who she she doesn't know who Glenda is, but her mom comes up to Brooke trying to find Glenda. And Brooke just pretends like, oh, Glenda. And she realizes, like, this is another person that I don't know. So, like, am mm-hmm. I to blame for that, too? And you see her go outside and cry. Yep. And that scene was featured heavily in the promos for this episode. I mean, Sophia's a good crier. <laughs> yes, she Let's is. Be honest. <laughs> and this is a good time for me to bring up in the um in the anatomy of an episode documentary. There's a moment where it's actually Hillary who says this. She mentioned that the interesting thing about the Peyton Edwards relationship is that it doesn't exist at all. And that's okay. You don't have to be friends with everyone, but it is important to be kind to everyone. And yeah, like, Hillary's talking about that with Peyton, but I feel like that's more of a deal for Brooke, because, yeah, Brooke is not friends with Jimmy, and you know what? That is okay. Maybe this episode could have been a little bit better if Brooke had this realization, like, you know what? Like, no, I'm not responsible for this. I'm not responsible for this because I wasn't friends with Jimmy, but I do kind of like seeing that internal struggle for her, and then see it continued with her not knowing who Glenda was, even though Glenda claims that the two of them are friends. I think in 315, we get that perspective from Rachel, right? Like, wasn't she saying to Mouth that, you know, it's not your fault that you weren't friends with Jimmy or that you, like, you know, distance grew between you and Jimmy. Mm-hmm. But we don't necessarily get that perspective in this episode. But, but in the previous right, one, right. Rachel, she did uh, hint towards that. I can't remember her exact words, but. 
Yeah, she, she says something like, uh, he's either going to stand on his own two feet or he's going to fall, but he has to do yeah. it on his own. So, yeah. But, uh, I, so, I kind of like this whole deal with Brooke, like, as an extension of that conversation, I guess. So, so, so I feel like, you know, just to, like, you know, have, like, a middle ground between, like, my stance and your stance, I feel like it probably could have been better if Rook did have this realization that, no, this isn't my fault. Yeah, I think so, to see her internal struggle, for sure. Mm-hmm. All right, do you want to head back to the tutor center? Yes, let's head back to the tutor center. So, we're in the tutor center, and we hear the bell rings, and then Jimmy's like, we've only been here for an hour, it seems like longer, and then... Haley says, I have current events this period. And then Rachel, like, you know, chimes in with a joke. She says, I think this counts. Yeah. It's just another example of, like, a funny joke. Yeah. Like, you know, laughing in the face of tragedy. Like, laughing in the... They're not laughing, you know what I mean? But it is kind of nice to see that Rachel is still sassy. Definitely. Even in this, uh... Even in the face of tragedy. So then Jimmy delivers another emotional monologue, which I'll read... He says, you see, one day I spent a whole day in the school without a single person looking at me or talking to me. And I realized that was the best day that I'd had in a long time. The day that nobody noticed me at all. The day I stopped being there. That was the best day. Well, that was kind of depressing. So I went home and I took an antidepressant. And then I took another one. And then for fun, I took 12 more. My mom and the doctors called it an accident, and then two weeks later when I got back to school, nobody noticed. It was like I never left. I guess that's the upside of not being there in the first place, right? Nobody misses you when you're gone. Whew. Once again, Colin Fickus really does a good job in delivering these emotional scenes, and this gives us insight on Jimmy's background. Yeah, and it's uh, very interesting, too, because... He's very much contradicted himself because at first he says his best day was when no one noticed him, but then he's upset that he returned to school and then no one noticed. It, I feel like it just illustrates that he's not in the right frame of mind. Yeah, you're true. He does contradict himself. And then we get another uh, great monologue from Mouth, and I can read that right here. Um, Mouth says, It's not supposed to be this way. The artists and the scientists and poets... None of them fit in at 17. You're supposed to get past it. Adults, they see kids kill kids, and they know it's a tragedy because they used to be those kids. The bullies and the beaten and the loners. You're supposed to get past it. You're supposed to live long enough to take it back. Just take it all back. Oh my gosh. Powerful. And then we are taken to the gym. And this is where Brooke find, actually finds Glenda. And tells her that her mom's looking for her. And Glenda shares with Brooke that she believes her mom kind of takes her for granted. And that she she wanted her mom to, like, kind of feel a little desperate. Or, like, she was missing Glenda for a short time before Glenda went over there and said she was okay. And that whole scene ends with Brooke saying, I'm really sorry, I don't know you. And once again, yeah, like, we're getting another perspective. So in this way, Brooke is able to take what just happened with the reporter and and maybe to kind of relate to what we were just talking about. Like, maybe she'll take that moment and now she'll try to not necessarily befriend people, but maybe notice them more. 
And that that could mm-hmm. be a positive thing. Like, just showing kindness. Just acknowledging, like, someone's existence. And it's it's kind of interesting to have Brooke come to this realization with somebody who obviously thinks very highly mm-hmm. of Brooke. Because Glenda's, you know, Glenda's mom says, like, oh, like, Glenda Farrell, she said you were friends. So it's it's interesting to, like, Brooke didn't notice somebody, like, who considers her a friend. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's not like we find out that Brooke was bullying somebody all this time. We find out that, like, oh, this person looks at Brooke as a friend. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, it's an interesting way to approach it. It is. And I think it's interesting that we also get insight on like what what Glenda's feeling about her mom and that she just doesn't feel like her mom appreciates her. And I wonder why they included that. Why do you think they included that in this episode? This, uh, you mean about Glenda Mm -hmm. and her mom? Um, hmm. I don't know if it's so obvious, actually. Yeah. I guess just to shed light on, like, different people who are experiencing this tragedy and how they're reacting to it. But I think it is an interesting choice that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of myself. Yeah, or, like, in a way, like, you could say that Jimmy is sort of being taken for for granted and forgotten about. And here's Glenda also going through something similar, just in a different way. True. So I think that's just another way. Like, I feel like we see it with her, and we also see it with Abby and with Jimmy. Like, they're all, like, sort of loners, and they just reacted to this uh, situation very differently. Reacted to their loneliness, I should say. So this actress who plays Glenda, her name is Amber Wallace, and I think she does a very great job. Um, You know, she's, like, likable on camera from the get-go. Um and something that happens in the comments area and trigger warning for just like, do I even need to provide a trigger warning? There's like a lot of- This whole of... episode is a trigger warning. <laughs> this whole episode's a trigger warning, but I feel like we didn't mention this in the intro. Um, Just like a trigger warning for like body shaming and it, it, it's it's weird. I'm going to get into it now. Um, So Sophia mentions, apparently mentioned to the creator, like, oh, we have to bring her back. She is a great actress. We should bring her back for future episodes. And this is what the creator talks about how he would like to bring Glenda back because, quote, body image is such a big part of adolescence for girls. And he also said that it's nice when the show is, quote, not just the beautiful people on the poster. (gasps) He's saying it like, he definitely feels, it definitely seems like he is mean and well. But, like, just because Glenda has a presence on the show, like, why does it have to be a statement about body positivity? Like, not all people who are, like, not all fat people want to be, like, in a storyline to represent body positivity. Sometimes fat people are just there, and they just exist. Like, why does there have to be a bigger social message just for a fat person existing? Oh, man. This is, the only reasoning I can give is this was 2006. Whew. It's so, so stupid. (laughs) He does, like, try to backtrack, and he says, like, oh, it's not that she's not a beautiful girl, though. (laughs) But still, it's... But yeah, just, like, you know, just showing, like, oh, hey, like, you know, we have a a plus-size actress on the show that's mostly thin people. Like, oh, look, body positivity. Like, why does it have to be about body positivity? Why can't, like, a fat person just exist and just move through the world, you know? Yeah, that was... That's really insensitive. 
Like, uh, and I'm just thinking about, like, I'm at a, just say, go on a slight tangent here. Like, I'm at a few, like, gay groups on Facebook. And there's, and, you know, there's always, like, like a bear, like a bigger gay man who, like, shares, like, a shirtless photo. And then there's people commenting and saying, like, yeah, yeah, I love that you have so much confidence. You look great. And I'm like, why do we have to, like, force that narrative on? Like, look, you have so much confidence. Like, why can't you be confident and be bigger? <sighs> wow. That's really true. <laughs> language yes. matters you know mm-hmm. and the way you say things even if you mean well it can be taken the wrong way so yeah i just wanted to say that but this scene ends with brooke calling karen and she says like i'm sorry i'm sorry i didn't know who else to call and then we go to tree hill high exterior so basically all that i have for this scene is keith is speaking with karen and he tells her it's going to be okay I'm not going to let anything happen to our boy. And you basically see uh, Dan glaring at them from a distance, which is foreshadowing, that's for sure. And this is Karen and Keith's last conversation. I know. Oh, it's heartbreaking. I know. But it's true, he did protect their boy. So let's head back to the Tudor Center. Haley is talking to Nathan, and she says, You shouldn't have come for me. I love you for doing it, but I just wish you were safe. And then that's when Jimmy goes off on a tangent and says that guys like you could get away with this. Like, I saw your clip on the time capsule. And again, I feel like this was, like, also diving into a little bit of incel territory by trying to say, Nathan, you can get away with this, but I can't. Mm -hmm. And... That's what Nathan says. All right, maybe it is easier for me and my friends. But you know what? That doesn't make what you're doing right, does it? This is wrong, man. All of this. And I think you know that. It's true. And even before that, Nathan says to him, you can pass judgment about guys like me all you want, but somebody stereotypes you and there's gunplay. So it, it does go to extremes here. And then right after this conversation, Haley starts to notice that Abby's not feeling well and she sees her diabetes bracelet on her wrist. And Abby, she needs her insulin, which is across the school in her locker. Yep. And everybody tries to convince Jimmy to let her go. And Jimmy says, all right, just you, come on. And then Abby, she looks really scared at the door and she asks him nervously, like, are there others out there? Yeah. And he says, there aren't. And I think that's when he says, does this feel well planned to you? And then he just says, go. This is another really powerful montage of scenes. Because I really like the score uh, during this scene as well. You see Abby running down the hall. Then you see Peyton. um, She's leaning against Lucas in the library. Brooks hugging Karen in the gym. Lucas Mm -hmm. is then moving furniture away from the door because they're going to try to, you know, leave the library. And once again, you see Abby running down the hall. So that whole, it's like a whole montage that kind of goes slow motion and the music's really beautiful in that moment. Mm -hmm. It's really well done. And uh, we we keep talking about this score, but let's talk about who was behind this because I feel like One Tree Hill is always so full of musical moments and like big name artists and whatnot. And uh, we sometimes don't always get to see the work of the composer, uh, who is John Nordstrom. And um, 
Caitlin actually found a SoundCloud uh, playlist of all the songs that are listed here, and they all have different composition titles. Um, we're not entirely sure how accurate this is, but uh, we will link to this in the show notes. Um, we don't know how accurate the actual titles are. The music if it sounds pretty accurate from what I've listened to. The music is accurate, yeah. But the, the titles, but the titles about, yeah. Though. Yeah, but I just want to I just want to note that this uh, particular song that you were just talking about is called Abby Release. Yes, I have that written down too. And then the one earlier that was playing during the the library kiss between Peyton and Lucas was Saving Peyton. Oh, just since we're talking about the music, <laughs> <laughs> of course. And then we are back at the tutor center. Jimmy actually, so he's watching um, Abby run down the hall, and then he turns around and he sees Nathan texting. He's texting Dan that Jimmy's the only shooter inside, but Jimmy then points the gun at Nathan because he sees him with the phone. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, and I de- like I definitely want to move there too, but uh, <laughs> I just want to I just want to mention like real quickly. I I think it's very interesting that Jimmy is smiling as Abby is running down the hallway. It just seems to to me like he's thinking, "Oh, she got to get out of this. She gets out of this. Like she is going to be okay." I noticed that smile, too. Which, it's very, very interesting. So I feel like it just proves that he was never planning to hurt anybody. I feel like it's just like, hey, she gets to go on and live her life. And he is happy about that. Yeah, so once uh, Jimmy points the gun at Nathan, we're then back outside at the school. And Keith approaches Dan and basically begs him to allow him inside because he wants to talk to Jimmy himself. Like, he'd be a good person to talk to Jimmy. And Dan, ironically, (laughs) says, no, it's too dangerous. And then it's kind of left open-ended, like, we don't know that he said yes to Keith. Yeah, Keith just says, please let me, and then it just cuts off, yeah. Um, And then we go back to the school, and I also want to note that in this moment in the commentary, that... uh, they started filming this episode right as the WB and the UPN were merging to become the CW. Like, the WB and UPN didn't become a network at that point, but that's when, like, the merger was beginning. And uh, I remember this, like, time in television history. Like, every show on the WB and UPN was in danger of getting canceled because they couldn't air all the shows together. So, yeah, One Tree Hill at this moment in time, was in danger of getting canceled. And um, during the commentary, they note that MSNBC was reporting on the show's chances of being on the new network. And there was apparently a quote that said, when was the last time you saw an important episode of One Tree Hill? And it was just ironic that they were filming this episode at that same time. Oh my gosh, that is funny. I would argue there were important episodes of One Tree Hill before this, but you know. Wow. Like, yeah, have they seen the rest of season three? Oh my god. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So we are in the tutor center, and Jimmy, he threatens to kill whoever steps inside the hallway next. Uh Uh-huh. And then we see Lucas and Peyton walk out of the library. The door slams. Lucas is very startled. Everyone in the tutor center hears the door slam, too. And then Jimmy says something like, that's my cue. I guess that's my cue, yeah. And he starts to he starts to walk off, and that's what Rachel says. Don't! Stop! Change it. Don't do this. And Daniel's performance here is just breaking my heart here. Um, and then Mal says, please, Jimmy, just turn yourself in. I can go with you. This can't be happening. And Skill says, 
yo, Edward's dog, it doesn't have to be like this. And then Jimmy says, yeah, I think it does. You know, they're gonna remember me as a monster. I wonder how they'll remember all of you. And he starts to walk down the hallway. What did you think about that line in particular? Well, he's probably right. They will remember him as a monster if he's about to do what, you know, he's saying he's going to do. And I wonder how they will remember all of you. I feel like that's meant to be this, like, really, um, like a jab. (laughs) Like, look at all of you, you terrible people. It's like, it's like Jimmy putting the blame on all of them. And I don't agree with that. Yeah, like... Funny thing is, like, I thought that, too, after until I started to really think about that line. And I feel like I'm giving this episode a lot of grace, um, and I'm projecting some of my own interpretations onto it. But I also want to note that there is a moment in the commentary where the creator mentions a conversation that he had with Joy. Um, Joy apparently had some reservations about this episode and about how it was passing judgment onto the victims, and saying they were complicit in these tragedies. The creator was like, oh, it's not about that. And then apparently, after filming this scene, Joy later said she understood it now, and she's proud to be a part of this episode. And I was thinking, like, I still want to know, like, why... How did Joy come to that conclusion? Um, Because I couldn't. But then I started to, like, really think about that quote. I personally think that Jimmy was planning to die when he heard that door slam. Like, he was planning to essentially end his life right then and there so it wasn't meant to mean like people are going to remember all of you as bullies all of you are bad people i think he was legitimately asking the question what will people think of all of you because right now my fate is sealed and i won't be around to see what people think of all of you wow yeah it's like an honest question then Mm -hmm. like to reflect on what kind of person are you you know yeah. What are you contributing to this world? And again, that's my interpretation of it. Like, I don't know, like, what, what the creator was thinking when he put those lines on paper. But I'm just giving this a lot of grace here, I think. Yeah, I feel like you could look at a lot of these lines in different ways. And I think that's what makes Colin Ficus's, um approach to this character and portrayal, like, really impactful. Yeah, there's lots of nuance here the way he delivers the lines they make you think Mm -hmm. because the way he delivered that like i think you really have to to think about it to understand what he was saying Mm -hmm. but let's talk about what happens next now not ready jeremy can you hold my hand not either virtually (laughs) i I could hold your hand virtually yes I would touch the camera right now, but I'm afraid I'm going to, like, mess up my little intricate audio setup. (laughs) (sighs) Anyway, podcast and a visual medium. (laughs) (laughs) We are back in the hallway. Um, So we already know that Lucas and Peyton are in the hallway, and then Jimmy is, you know, walking out of the tutor center. And he sees Lucas carrying Peyton. Lucas tells him that she's bleeding and that she could die if he doesn't get her out of here. Gee, I wish the police uh, would have that same mindset. Yeah. <laughs> and Jimmy, in this line, this line kills me. He says, I didn't mean to hurt her. And there's so much truth in the way he portrays that and, and says it. Like, there's so much truth there. Like, that was not his intention. He didn't want to hurt anyone. He truly didn't. You can tell in how he says it. 
Absolutely. And that's when Keith enters and he says, we know that, Jimmy. And Jimmy is like wondering, like, what the hell is this? The school's on lockdown. And then Keith asks him to let them go because Peyton is hurt. And then once again, he says, I didn't mean it. Lucas then is still carrying Peyton and is about to take her outside and pauses. And Keith Mm -hmm. says to him, and oh my God, Luke, I love you. Now go. And as that little exchange is happening, we are triggering the coda officially. And the Michelle Featherstone song, God Bless the Child, starts to play. And that is the only song, actual lyrical song, I guess, that plays in the episode. So Keith is trying to get the gun back from Jimmy because he says he's been there. That's a complicated tangent that we also get into with our conversation with Gavi. So, once again, go listen to that conversation. Yeah, so his exact lines, he says, well, I'm not gonna leave you here, son. I'm not gonna do that, and I'll tell you why. Because I've been there. I bought the gun, and I planned on using it, okay? I've been there. And I want to tell you something. It gets better. And then Jimmy replies, not this. It can't. This is really where it starts to get heartbreaking. And uh, Craig Sheffer just does a phenomenal job. He says, it does, Jimmy. That pain in your stomach, that pain in your heart, it goes away. That voice in your head that says there's no way out, it's wrong, Jimmy. Please, please just believe me, it gets better. And then Jimmy responds, it won't. Not after this. I can't take this back. I can't erase this. She's gonna die. And Keith says, you don't know that. So it's like there's so much regret there that he feels. Like, he didn't want this to happen. It's clear as day. Everything that he said basically all day, including this. He didn't want this to happen. He didn't want to hurt Peyton. And it's like he's stuck. He doesn't know what to do next. And that's when we see Lucas taking Peyton outside and there's a SWAT team that is um, greeting them. And as that's happening, we hear Jimmy say... I wanted them to leave me alone. I just, I wanted them to like me. Keith responds, I understand, son. It's what we all want. It's all any of us wants. And that makes me like tear up because it's so true. I just like putting yourself into the position of a high school student who feels isolated. Like you're going through so many changes, physically, emotionally, mentally, all of it as an adolescent. And I think the basic need that anyone ever really wants is to be liked. And and Keith saying mm-hmm. that is like speaking for everyone, you know? It's what we all want. And then we see Lucas and Peyton and the SWAT team again. This is kind of like a montage going on. Um, it's like switching back and forth between that and, and Jimmy and Keith. And at this moment, Jimmy is kind of uh, disassociating, I guess you could say, because he has this blank expression on his face. And then he looks around and says, I'm not here, which I don't really know like what he was trying to say there other than the fact that he was clearly disassociated. Did you have any thoughts on that? No, I was thinking the same thing. It's like he's telling himself this is not actually happening. This is not real. You know, this is all this is all dream, basically. Like, you know, when you're you're in shock or something's happening, it's kind of like an outer body of experience you know i think the only way to cope with that with overwhelming feelings which is what he's dealing with is to kind of dissociate 
This part is just so painful to witness. Yep, and at this point, uh, Jimmy is banded on his chest. Banded on his heart, specifically, I should say. He just says, it hurts. It always hurts, and he's screaming it. And, um, what does Keith say after this? I know, but please. And Jimmy turns the gun on himself at that point. As Keith is screaming no. Yep, shoots himself in the heart. And this is when God Bless the Child by Michelle Featherstone ends. And then we transition to John Nordstrom's composition, Lost Along the Way, at least according to the SoundCloud we found. So once they hear the gunshot, it flashes to Haley and Nathan hearing that in the Tudor Center. So it's like this shock is like reverberating throughout the whole the whole school and beyond at this point, because now everything's changed. And you you want to read Lucas's voiceover and then we'll then we'll share like the montage of scenes yeah so he says does this darkness have a name this cruelty this hatred how did it find us did it steal into our lives or did we seek it out and embrace it what happened to us that we now send our children into the world like we send young men to war hoping for their safe return but knowing some will be lost along the way When did we lose our way, consumed by the shadows, swallowed whole by the darkness? Does this darkness have a name? Is it your name? And let's talk about the things that happen as we hear this monologue. So we see this sequence of images here. Keith is, as soon as Jimmy shoots himself, Keith kind of runs to Jimmy's side. We then see Rachel comforting Mouth and the other Tudor Center people as well. Uh, we flash to Keith, clearly very upset. Peyton is being wheeled onto an ambulance. Lucas hugs Karen, so they have reunited. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Edwards' mom is outside waiting, which and she's looking onward. It's really haunting yep. and sad. Lucas then hugs Brooke. And then we are at our final scene of the episode, which is the most pivotal moment of One Tree Hill. (laughs) You should see Jeremy's face. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, (laughs) who's going to go with this one? (laughs) Do you want me to do it? uh, I can do it. You've you've done a good job talking. Um, So, Keith looks down at Jimmy and he says, he's gone, Danny. And we notice that Dan is holding the gun in his hands, and he lifts it up, he points it toward Keith, Keith is looking on like in complete shock, and then Dan pulls the trigger. And that's when you're hearing that final line from the Lucas voiceover. Does this darkness have a name? Is it your name? That always, that sticks out of my mind. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, we talk a lot about this with Gavi as well, where it's like, did this scene need to... Like, obviously, this scene illustrates that Dan had the opportunity, and this is how he ends up killing Keith, and it's like, it's necessary for the story, but it feels like it's almost two separate storylines. Like, did this need to happen in this episode? Like, yeah, like, Dan could have shot Keith in a different episode, but, like, it just seems kind of kind of muddy to have it happen in this one. 
Especially if you're trying to deliver a message, which I really don't even know if this episode truly was delivering a message. Now that we have dissect the heck out of it, I don't really think it is delivering much of a message. But it is a pivotal episode of One Tree Hill. Yeah, and like I said earlier, does R always have to deliver a bigger social commentary? And I'm not looking for an answer for that. It's just a general question. I don't think there is a right answer for it. Let's talk about our favorites, quote-unquote, moments in this episode. (laughs) What was a quote that resonated with you the most? The final Lucas voiceover. Specifically the line, does this darkness have a name? Is it your name? Because it is like seared into my head. It's so haunting. And I just associate it with this episode. And Chad delivers it perfectly. Yeah, it's very effective. So that is my favorite quote. My favorite quote is when Rachel says, 700 days, high school, out of 20 or 30,000. Can't you see past that? It's only 700 days. And I feel like I got into that earlier, but I just think that's a very hopeful quote in my eyes. It is. Um, What was your favorite musical moment? So I really loved the the ending coda, but the John Nordstrom uh, score called, we think, uh, if these titles are accurate, Lost Along the Way, which is that final song. And then my honorable mentions were Saving Peyton, which played during the Lucas Peyton library kiss, and also Abby released when Abby's running in the hallway after Jimmy let her go. Yeah, that's uh, that's actually my favorite part, so... um. That whole montage, I think it's really beautiful. It um, and an honorable mention to when Jimmy walks out of the Tudor Center, song is called Change It. I think that's just very well done because you see everybody is like so upset because they don't know what's going yeah. to happen. Overall, a really good composer for this episode. Oh, absolutely. So overall, though, what do you think of your rating for this episode? I know that... Um... We take issue with a lot of things or we question a lot of things, but overall, I think this is a really strong episode of One Tree Hill. Um, So I give it five out of five stars. I feel like I'm at a four out of five just because I'm not necessarily sure what this episode is trying to accomplish. But again, is if I if, okay, I feel like if I look at it as a piece of art, five out of five. But because I feel like kind of conflicted on if this episode is trying to accomplish anything, I say give it a four. So yeah, four out of five stars, yeah. I'd say. I hear that. I do. Um, it's just hard for me to... It's just one of the, the biggest episodes of the whole series. So I... And overall, I like how it shows the different perspectives. Mm-hmm. So that to me is powerful. And Colin Fickus's performance is great. So there's there's a lot of good things about it. Absolutely. But we did it. That we, we did. finally <laughs> talked about this episode. And listeners, if I know you've listened to us for more than two hours now at this point, but if you would like to hear an additional episode where we dive into some of the deeper themes, please check out part two of this episode with Gavi Kovacs later this week, Thursday, March 9th. and forever is on twitter instagram and facebook at always oth pod you can also email us at always oth pod at gmail.com i'm jeremy rodriguez and you can find me on twitter at rodriguez jeremy 
And I'm Caitlin Elinich, and you can find me on Twitter at Miss I Reads. Outside of following our socials, the easiest way to support us is by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. That helps One Tree Hill fans new and old find us. You can also support us via Patreon, where for as low as $2 a month, you can gain access to bonus content, our private Discord server where you can chat with us and other listeners, and early episode releases. Visit patreon.com slash alwaysothpod for more information. Now, if you don't want future episodes of One Tree Hill to be spoiled for you, now is the time to turn this podcast off. Otherwise, stay tuned for the spoiler segment after the music ends. We'll We'll be be seeing seeing ya. Welcome to the spoiler segment of Always and Forever. This is your last reminder to turn off the podcast if you do not want spoilers. So, yeah, Dan shot keith i feel loopy now we've been recording for more than two hours (laughs) yeah (laughs) so i'm like yeah that happens um and we end up finding out because at the end of season three somebody writes murderer on dan's wall and you're left on a cliffhanger who is it it turns out to be abby yeah we find that out in season four because she obviously was released into the hallway to get her insulin and apparently off screen because we don't we never see it on screen she sees dan kill keith uh-huh and it's just so weird like do we really believe that abby would like write murderer on a wall and also why does she keep it a secret like it doesn't make any sense whatsoever like especially if you like move through to season four like th- that plot point does not make any sense and it just seems like the writers had to come up with something we're like oh somebody saw dan do it like <laughs> We have to, like, make up a reason or something. Yeah, I know. Because Abby doesn't seem like the person who would go write murder on. Right? Like, wouldn't she just go to the police or something? Or, you know? Exactly. Like, yeah, why would she black? And it's not like she was even asking for anything either. Like, so that plot point's very, very weak in my opinion. (laughs) Yeah, it's strange. I remember back when uh, there were... One Tree Hill got leaked all the time. Spoilers got leaked. And I remember there was a leak that Mouth was blackmailing Dan. Huh. I remember that being a thing, like, early on in season four. It turned out not to be true, (laughs) but it's interesting. I guess it could have been someone that we didn't even see on screen on the school shooting episode, too. You know? But the fact that I guess they wanted to include someone that was, like, involved that day, so it made more sense. I, I don't really know. I'm interested to see that storyline play out again. It's been such a long time since I've seen season four. I remember not liking it then. Maybe I'll change my mind. I don't think I will, but we'll see. But in addition to Abby, we also see two other characters return later on in the series. We get Marcus return for one episode, which I don't like. I'm like, I would have. I wish we got to see more of him. Yeah, and I think that was the um, the penultimate episode of the season, right? It when was. Yeah. Doing mm-hmm. the um. The the rehearsal rehearsal dinner, but the show, whatever they call that, of all the different (laughs) scenes of Nathan and Haley's, like, relationship. So Marcus, Marcus has, like, a short conversation with Nathan and Haley, just about how they're doing. It wasn't really, Mm. like, that major of a thing. But he, he left school. I think you find out that he left school. Mm Mm-hmm. Because he couldn't go back back there, there as a because of trauma, yeah. And then in season four, we get Glenda's return, and I think it's the episode "Pictures of You," where they are all paired off and they have to take the pictures of themselves Mm and whatnot. That's a really iconic episode. And Glenda is paired with who is she paired with again? 
That's what I she's paired with thought Lucas. It was Lucas. Yeah. Because she tells Lucas that he would make a good yeah. goth, and then she gives him yeah, like a little makeover. Yeah, because we see her appearance is all goth now. <laughs> so like that's how they. That's how the school shooting, I guess, affected her. She's like super dark now. Like you know. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> super dark now so i guess i don't know that doesn't really make a lot of sense she she looks great as a goth but it is kind of funny to see her go from like here to that just like so drastically like okay <laughs> like it works but we don't get much of her either it's you know it's kind of disappointed and as a missed opportunity yeah. i wish we could have seen her more throughout the series but i think pictures of you was her last episode yeah that, that was the only time we ever saw her yeah, there's one other episode actually. Oh, there is. Yeah, there's. I think there's at least three. Now I gotta. I, I gotta. In this season, I guess. I am a. This. Oh uh, yeah, this season. That's it. Mm-hmm. And pictures of you is in season four. Yes. Da, da, da. I got you. I got you. Oh yeah, in season four she appears and oh, that's actually not her last episode. Oh no, that's right. She appears in the prom episode as well. Oh. She hands out with Lucas. So yeah, she appears in episodes four, thirteen, fourteen, and sixteen in season four. So her last appearance is episode sixteen. Interesting. I don't really rem I only really remember pictures of you. I think the other scenes must have just been really yeah. short stuff. <laughs> Yeah, there's, she doesn't have, like, a big arc or anything like that, but she does spend a lot of time with Lucas yeah, at yeah. the prom because, you know, Lucas's girlfriend is busy being yeah, held yeah. hostage. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. <laughs> Which we all get there. But, yeah, starting next week, that's when I will be doing my little funny intros, but I feel like it would be insensitive if I did that now. Yes. So, I am just going to say that for our next episode, we will be discussing Season 3, Episode 17, which is entitled who will survive, and what will be left of them. And taken from our OTH DVD box sets, the description reads, Two deaths, many lives shattered. Students and parents grapple with the tragedy that has stunned Tree Hill. Inconsolable Karen blames Lucas, and Dan is haunted by specters of himself and Keith as children. We'll be seeing ya. That might have actually been in sync. I think so. Is this an important episode for the podcast as well, Caitlin? Uh Uh-huh. Beautiful.